Well, we see all those names up there, pretty impressive, isn't it? The number of people who volunteer in various areas of our children's ministry. And there's some of you, and we thank God for you. Let's pray together and give thanks to the Lord for our children's ministry. Father, we're glad for what you're doing in the lives of our boys and girls because of dedicated people who are giving. We thank you for Julie and Karen who've done such a magnificent job setting in this interim time as we seek a new children's director. And Father, I pray that those who are, have given so generously will sense great encouragement knowing that what they have planted in the lives of boys and girls will bring fruit to the glory of your name for decades to come. We claim that and we give thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open our Bibles together, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue working our way through this great epistle written by Paul the Apostle. Today we're going to talk about the advantage of being single as we pick up our reading in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. But some of you Vikings fans take that a little bit too literally in Viking season, I want to tell you that. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and that she may be holy both in body and spirit. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how, he may please, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's a great statement. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. 
So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. One of our single women handed me this little note last week as we talked about marriage and the advantages of being single in the earlier text. It says, men are like parking spaces. All the good ones are already taken, and the rest are handicapped or their meters are running out. No, that wasn't one of our single women. That was somebody else who gave me that. But today we want to talk about the advantage of being single. I was talking with a friend of mine a few days ago, and he made the comment to me, I'm glad that my children are grown up because of the kind of a day that we're living in. Have you ever had that feeling, those of you whose children are grown? If you can identify with that statement, then perhaps you can understand a little bit of what Paul is saying here when he argues for the advantage of remaining single. Now already in the chapter as we have studied it, he has written to us about singleness, but now he is going to reiterate some of that and expand on it. I note Paul's words and his spirit. He says, I give an opinion. I think that this is good. In my opinion, you see, in writing by the inspiration of the Spirit, there is no doubt of the authority of his words, and yet they are not harsh, legalistic, and overbearing. There is in this chapter a wonderful spirit of grace that comes through in Paul's counsel. If I were to sum up this chapter in its entirety, and perhaps to an extent even the whole book, I would put it in this sentence. Live wisely, using the gifts God has given you to serve him in your world. Live wisely, using the gifts that God has given you to serve him in this world. Now, as I mentioned last week, in this chapter, Paul gives to us a lot of advice and counsel concerning questions that he had been asked. We don't have the questions. And so what we attempt to do is go back to the content and formulate what the questions might have been. There are two questions in the text as we read it this morning. The first question deals with this. Should a father give his daughter in marriage? Now remember that the cultural situation is quite different in Corinth than it is in contemporary America. In those days, fathers or parents arranged for marriages. And so the question arose, should a conscientious Christian father arrange the marriage of his unmarried daughter, or is it better for her to remain single? That seems to be the question that Paul had been asked. And so now he is going to answer it. 
And so we come first to his counsel. Verses 26 and 27 rather summarize that. He doesn't give a commandment, but his counsel is that they are better off not to marry. A father is better not to give his daughter in marriage. He says this is good. That is, it makes good sense, and he, he lays out for us three reasons why this makes good sense. First, because of what he calls the present distress in verse 26. The present distress. We need to remember that a Christian is naturally in conflict with the world system that we live in. When Paul talks about a distressful time, this period of stress, he may be referring to a persecution that the Corinthians were in or which was impending for them. I remind you of the words of our Lord when he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have pressure against you. But take courage, I have overcome the world, he assures us. Now in Corinth, we know of no particular persecution at this point that there had been some earlier. But looking at history, we know that within ten years of Paul's writing this epistle, Emperor Nero would reign in Rome and would unleash throughout the Roman Empire a severe persecution against Christians. Perhaps Paul sensed that that was coming, and he says, in light of that, it may be better for a father not to give his daughter in marriage. Because to be married multiplies the sense of responsibility in a time of persecution. One who is facing persecution is concerned for his family, or for her family, who will care for them? The family suffers when the father, the mother suffers. The husband, the wife suffers. Who will care for the family? Who will see to its suffering? I think of those families who suffered greatly under the persecution of communism in Russia. And the stories I have read in past years of fathers and mothers on occasion also being dragged off to prison and the family being left to its own. You can see why Paul would say, in light of the present distress, it might be better not to be married. The apostle suggests a second reason, and that is because of the shortened time. He talks about this in verses 29 to 31. Literally, he says, the time is having been shortened. Now, the question is, what is he talking about? What time? The word that he uses points to a particular appointed time. He says, that time has been shortened. Is it the Lord's coming that Paul is thinking of? In Romans 13, he writes, and this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. It may be here saying the Lord's coming is imminent, and therefore it may be better not to marry. 
or he may be pointing towards that same persecution that he had in mind by the present distress. Either way, you understand that phrase. Paul is encouraging believers then and now to be detached from the world in a certain sense. In the language that he uses here, he says that we must hold loosely to the affairs and the experiences of this life. We need to realize that the outward form of the world, its manner of operation, its way of doing things, is right now in the process of passing away, he says. So don't hang on to it too tightly. And he lists five common experiences that he says we ought not to hang on to very loosely, very, very tightly. The first one is marriage. He says if you have a wife, then maybe you should live as though you had none. He seems to point here to marriage that although we, we enjoy marriage and we, we treasure that relationship, and rightly so, we also need to realize that marriage is a part of this world and that marriage relationship is passing away. This is denied by some cults. The Mormons, for example, teach that men should marry, at least uh, spiritually marry many women in this world because someday those marriages will be consummated in heaven. The Moonies talk about eternal marriages, celestial marriages. The Bible says that marriage is a part of this world and it as a relationship is passing away. And so understand it in its context. He talks about weeping and rejoicing. Both of those human emotions. Weeping over losses. Well, we shouldn't weep too much because those things that we lost were passing away anyway. And do we rejoice over success or promotion? Understand that, that that's temporal. He talks about buying, getting involved in commerce, in investing, in business. That's part of life. We all do that. But he says, remember that that's not all that life is, and it's passing away. And then he talks about enjoying the pleasures of the world, the fifth experience. And likewise, God doesn't mind that we have pleasure in things in this world. But the point is that if we focus on those, we've missed life. He says we are to hold loosely to the experiences of life because the shortened time we do not often expend as much energy and resource on the kingdom of God as we do on the things that are passing away. And that is to our shame. It is the eternal things, rather, that ought to matter. Those are the things that ought to preoccupy us, that ought to absorb our time, that ought to be the focus of our thoughts, that ought to be the, the source of our resources. We need to keep these things in perspective. Paul says there's a third reason why he thinks it might be better not to marry, and that is because of the concerns of marriage. He speaks about this in verses 32 to 35, the concerns of marriage. 
may carry certain responsibilities with it. It makes demands upon our time and our energy. It restricts us. It, it creates an encumbrance upon us. Just ask the young man who is used to playing softball all Saturday, every weekend. What happens when he gets married? Softball doesn't usually last very long. Because now he has another concern. He's distracted from that hobby that he had before by his wife. The concerns of marriage can be heavy. Married people must divide their interests between the things of earth and the things of heaven, and rightly so. But Paul says the unmarried, on the other hand, are able to concern themselves regarding the things of the Lord more fully, in body and in spirit. John MacArthur writes, it is not that the married believer has divided spiritual loyalties, or that the unmarried is more spiritually faithful. Many married believers are holy in the sense of being highly devoted to the Lord. And many single believers are divided in their spiritual interests. He says marriage does not present great devotion to the Lord and singleness does not guarantee it. But singleness has fewer hindrances and more advantages. And so as Paul puts all of these reasons together, he says it's probably better for a father not to give his daughter in marriage. That's his counsel. But then Paul makes a concession. And that concession is found in verse 28, where he says marriage is not sinful. He says, I think it's better for you not to marry, but if one does choose to marry, he doesn't sin in doing that. Marriage is not sinful. The point is that we need to be sure that it's God's will for us and that it's not just social pressure forcing us into marriage. God has ordained marriage for the blessing of mankind and it is a necessity for the propagation of the human race. It is good. It is not sinful. But we have to recognize that marriage, blessing that it is, does bring trouble in this life. As Paul says here, the word trouble in this verse means pressure. There are difficulties. There are hardships. There are griefs that come with the blessing of marriage. Those troubles are due to our human fallenness. We are sinners, and because of that, we also give birth to little sinners. And the result is that there are troubles that come with marriage. It can be summarized in words like anger, and forgetfulness, and dishonesty, pride, indulgence, demand, thoughtlessness. see, all of those things come out of our humanness, and they come with us in marriage, and therefore there's trouble. Marriage does not solve problems. If some of you who are single think, if I could just get married, it would solve my problems. It does not solve problems. What it does is magnify problems. 
The only thing worse than waiting to get married is wishing that you had. I'll tell you something, living in single blessedness is better than living in married cussedness. You need to think about that before you get married. There can be trouble in marriage. And so the bottom line that Paul comes to is this. Each father or each parent is free to decide for himself regarding the marriage of his daughter. This is verses 36 to 38. He may permit the marriage. If he, in withholding the permission to marry, in thus acting unbecomingly toward his daughter, if in doing so he is creating pressure in her, that is unwarranted, then he should grant her the privilege to marry. If she desires it, probably because she doesn't have the gift of singleness, he says if she has passed the full blossom of her youthfulness, which doesn't mean necessarily she's an old maid, but she is mature enough to make up her own mind, Paul is saying you permit the marriage, verse 36. But he says you can also not permit the marriage, verse 37. If that is your conviction, then don't permit the marriage. Now, in our culture today, how does all of this apply? It seems to me it's this. Each one has to decide for himself regarding whether he should marry or not. Now, we live in a culture that has sort of demeaned the single state. If someone is not married, then something must be wrong with them, is often how people view at least in the past, have used singles. That is so unscriptural, unbiblical. To be single has great advantage, and it is a blessed state from God. It is a gift from God. And so I come back to my main point this morning, and that is this, that we need to live wisely using God's gift to serve Him in the world. And if God has given you the gift of singleness, my friends, Thank God for that and use it. And do not feel pressured into marriage. Now that brings us to a final question of verses 39 and 40. And that is the question, should a widow remarry? Or we can say, should a widower remarry? God's principle, as is clearly seen here, is that marriage is until death. Now that wasn't his ideal. God's ideal was that Adam and Eve would live on in that relationship, in their innocence, and not know death. But because of the influence of sin and death, God's ideal was reduced to marriage between a man and woman until death. Now Paul has three notes here, it seems to me, regarding his counsel to widows and whether they should remarry. Frankly, most widows that I know would not would laugh at this question. Should a widow remarry? You've got to be kidding me. But Paul's first note is this. It's a note about liberation. That death frees the survivor to marry again if he or she wishes to do so. Most don't wish. And that's fine. And that's time of life, although it can be lonely, can also be a very fruitful time of life. 
as that singleness is used for the glory of God. But then Paul's second note is a stipulation. He says, you may remarry, but in the Lord. It must be to a believer. And then he gives a consideration, and that is, the greater happiness will be found in following his earlier advice to stay single, particularly in light of the present distress. So those are Paul's few words, as it turns out, to widows and whether they should remarry. Now, to put a line under this and sum it up, I want to talk about five observations about marriage that we glean from this chapter. The first is this. Only you can decide if marriage will help or hinder your life mission. That is God's purpose in your life. Only you can decide that. Your mom and dad can't decide it for you. Your friends can't decide it for you. Be they single or married, don't be pressured by them. Only you can decide if marriage will help you or hinder you in accomplishing God's mission and purpose in your life. I think back to Jim Elliott, who weighed this a long time before he asked Elizabeth to marry him. Because he was very serious about being devoted to the Lord. And finally he decided that marriage indeed would help him. But only you can decide that. Secondly, parental involvement and pastoral counsel in the decision are important. You will make a big mistake if you don't include your parents in the process of making the decision, should I marry this person or not? You need to listen to their counsel because they know you better than anybody else. And Paul is here giving pastoral counsel, and that's why I say I think it's important to talk to a pastor. We use a test here in our church as part of the pre-marriage counseling that is a tremendous tool in helping a couple see whether or not they're compatible. And to understand what issues they're going to face in their marriage should they proceed. It is important to get that kind of counsel as you are thinking about marriage. Third, marriage brings both joys and cares. That's obvious. Number four, if you marry, marry only in the Lord. Somebody said if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have a lot of trouble with your father-in-law. God commands us to be married only in the Lord, only to other believers. Number four, number five, whatever your marital state, use it for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. That brings me back to my point again, and I repeat it. Live wisely. Using God's gift to serve him in your world. And as Paul points out in this chapter, do that because you don't have long. The Lord may be coming soon. We may be facing persecution in our country. Life is short. The time is short. Therefore, use your gifts to serve the Lord. A man that I was pleased to be able to call a friend 
in recent years was Judge James Knutson. Some of you knew Judge Knutson uh, in Anoka County. He passed away in February at 80 years of age. Now, I knew the judge from a certain relationship, but I did not understand the, the, the depth of his influence in the lives of people. His memorial service was probably close to two hours long. As selected people got up and talked about how he had touched their lives in a, in a variety of ways. And then, I think it was the pastor of his church who got up and read a poem that Judge Knudsen wanted read on that occasion because it summarized how he saw his life. It was a poem written by Samuel Shoemaker. He entitled it, An Apologia for My Life. That is a reason for my life. It's entitled, I Stand by the Door. Listen to these words. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there, when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most important, the most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for want of what is within their grasp. They, they live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. And so I stand by the door. Doesn't that fit pretty well? Isn't that what using our gifts to serve God is all about? Isn't this living wisely to stand by the door? Life is quickly passing. Harry Ironside included this poem in his sermon on this text. Life at best is very brief, like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheep. Be in time. Fairest flowers soon decay. Youth and beauty pass away. Oh, you have not long to stay. Be in time.
And if you're here today without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, be in time. Don't wait. Don't put off the decision to trust Him. Because life is short. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, let's stand by that door and be there in time. And use whatever gifts God has given us, be we married or single, to use those gifts that He has given us to serve Him in the world and live life. Let's pray together. As we talked about the advantage of the single life this morning, you may thank God that you're single, or you may be a very frustrated single person. May I encourage you to stop focusing on your singleness and to focus on the door, to focus on God's will and mission in your life, and determined to live wisely using the gifts he's given you. And if he brings you into a marriage relationship, then bless God for it. If he does not, then bless God that he has given you this single opportunity to serve him. And praise him for the advantages. Married Christian. Marriage has its troubles, doesn't it? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But will you use your marriage, that gift from the Lord to serve Him? Will you get your eyes off of the troubles and onto what the Lord has given you in your spouse, that wonderful gift? And determined by His grace to work through the trouble so that you can accomplish your mission, being made, I hope you will. I know it may be tough. I know you have some things to work through that may be very hard, but God will be with you. God will bless you and bless it. Father, I pray that whatever our state, that we will learn to be content, and that in the state in which you have called us, we will choose to live wisely, not holding tightly to the things that are passing away, but focusing on that which is eternal, standing by the door, and using the gifts that you've given us to serve you in the world where you put it. Lord, strengthen our resolve to be fully devoted followers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you